Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive uh, Podcast. My guest today is Elizabeth Freely. Elizabeth is a mining social sustainability and ESG strategist with a passion for harnessing natural resources to catalyze global development and tackle humanity's grand challenges. She supports the industry globally in future fit ESG integration and social performance leadership. Elizabeth is also the host of an industry podcast, Prospecting Purposes and Future of Mining 360 Degrees ESG Unearthed. Her business track record has also included impact investing, renewable energy, secular economy, and clean tech ventures. Elizabeth, welcome to the Shilakama Extractive Podcast. I appreciate you joining me. Thank you so much, Sheila. It's an absolute pleasure and honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Lovely. So I wonder if you could just give us your opinion of how this notion of governance in extractives has evolved uh, over time. Sure. Brilliant question to uh, start our conversation off with. Uh, I would say a great deal. Uh, Consider that natural resources play a dominant role in about half the countries on this planet. Uh, So it's no small question, how do we govern this? Um, But the notion of governance is in many respects still a relatively young concept, I'd say. Uh, We know that extractive industries hold the power to convert natural capital into other assets uh, that can propel shifts away from poverty, for example, towards lasting development outcomes. But for that shift to be possible, the extractive activity has to occur within a transparent framework of sound institutions that are established to ensure extractive sector development ultimately will give more than it will take. But this thinking is pretty new. Uh, For many countries historically, undertaking industrial resource development, it it happened when, when knowledge of good practices to support broader development was not readily available yet. Collectively, we had a lack of experience designing and implementing policies to harness natural resources for economic growth and development. And it wasn't until relatively recently, uh, the 90s, the early 2000s, that there came this growing global understanding that royalties, taxes, and other such typical proceeds were not necessarily contributing to lasting development outcomes for the country's economic future, the the well-being of their citizens, and that in many cases, burgeoning resource development was actually undermining economic growth, was corroding institutions. So then this theory was um, emerged that transparency would unleash a wave of citizen engagement, uh, which in turn would drive down corruption and improve development outcomes. So, for example, uh, in the past 20 years, one of the highest profile efforts worth mentioning on this question is the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, the EITI. So that has focused on transparency and anti-corruption in resource-rich countries. And we have learned a lot as an industry through that experience, including that transparency alone does not equal governance. And along the same timeline, uh, again, the last 20 years or so, Another interesting initiative to mention is the Intergovernmental Forum on Mining, Minerals, Metals, and Sustainable Development, uh, known as the IGF now. So it was also born, and it has been a great source of learning on extractives governance. Uh, Today, we know we need 
more participatory and accountability mechanisms, laws, policies, regulations that were historically weak or absent. We know we need more inclusive practices to optimize financial benefits, to support livelihoods, to safeguard the environment. And while every country, of course, has to make its own choices uh, about the governance tools and approaches that will best suit its context, we do now have examples of all sorts of integrated policy interventions that can, again, transform natural resource wealth into sustainable development. And these range from the allocation of resource extraction rights to institutional structures, to the use and, and distribution of, of revenues. And, uh, you know, right now we're actually, we're also starting to see this question become even more complex without going down a rabbit hole. Uh, but with the advent of deep sea and outer space uh, mining in particular, these are the new frontiers of resource extraction for humanity, where we can use what we've learned about governance frameworks um, that will be required. But the needs of these arenas really surpass the boundaries of the nation state lens, um, which quite changes the playing field. So this is a live, fascinating and rapidly evolving conversation. Uh, maybe yeah. I'll stop there. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, just from starting with the assumption that transparency is a panacea and then finding out <laughs> that, no, actually, it's an important leg, but it's not a be-all. To then, yeah. to your point, moving from uh, what we have become accustomed to, mm -hmm. which is terrestrial mining, to now moving to deep sea, potentially, and outer space, and that <laughs> not only is... Uh, governance changing, but then what we are doing and where we are doing it and how, why we are doing it is also changing. And therefore, governance seems to me uh, by necessity is going to itself be evolving. So in light of that, how well, uh, if at all, has ESG improved the accountability aspect uh, of uh, governance in your view? I, I would say uh, massively, uh, especially in this era of growing social unrest, growing social inequality, um, uh, stretching the planetary boundaries. It's, it's a very, very timely question. Uh, the, the rise of corporate sustainability and responsibility standards in the first instance uh, definitely has improved accountability across the extractives. But that said, it has definitely been mixed. So on the positive side, we have industry standards and reporting and disclosure frameworks that have helped to raise awareness among a range of stakeholders, including investors, governments, local communities, civil society, uh, particularly on the environmental and social risks and, and impacts associated with extractive activity. Um, and this has led to increased pressure around performance on companies, and hence the emergence of ESG in recent years, which is very much an investor-driven, risk-based movement in the first instance. Uh, and it has grown to include regulators, which has substantially changed the game from the early days of just voluntary sustainability standards, the GRI in the early uh, 2000s, being obliged to disclose on your ESG practices and your performance, and increasingly having mechanisms to audit or validate claims is having a really impressive impact, in, in my opinion. It, it's improved transparency, um, accountability, 
plenty of companies have substantially improved their environmental and social management practices uh, in light of regulatory investor and social license links uh, to this question. Hmm. But so it's, the reality is, I will just say we have a long way to go <laughs> because, yeah. you know, implementation can be weak. Enforcement can be weak uh, where we don't have regulatory oversight. Uh, for example, uh, some companies are still using ESG as a as a greenwashing, right? Yeah, that's interesting because what you are saying is ESG has helped. But even as we bring in uh, ESG, the challenges we are having now uh, are that, in effect, you have standards and then you have to enforce them. Uh, otherwise, uh, people then, to your uh, word, greenwash, because in effect, it, the, the ESG is now subject to abuse. So you, you can have all the standards you want, but if there's no good intention, even the standards themselves can uh, come to pass. I, I'm intrigued, uh, Elizabeth, that you've spoken uh, about companies. As a matter of fact, you've mentioned governments. And so I, I wanted to know, because in my view, there's a tripartite here. You have the public, the private, and then you have civil society in the form of NGOs and other entities. And I, I did want mm. to ask you, I mean, you know, one hears about accountability uh, by NGOs to the public. Is this, uh, you know, how do we see this? How do we make sure that NGOs themselves, are there's some oversight uh, and that mm. we protect the publics against what might be special interests within NGOs, or is the 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 mm. the the value proposition of NGOs, their intentions and their goodwill, is it self-evident? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I mean, it's a that's such a tough question. I, I, NGOs are generally accountable, really, to their donors, their supporters, um, and the beneficiaries of their programs and activities. So we can't assume that they are inherently neutral or that they inherently have the entire general public's interest at heart, even if we believe that there is such a thing as the general public. Um, they aren't typically held to the same level of accountability as a government entity um, or publicly traded corporations. And there's definitely limited oversight of their operations in most contexts, because as, as you say, we kind of, uh, we assume, right? But many do operate with a, a strong commitment to, to transparency and accountability. And I, I do think it's important to, to recognize that they may have internal mechanisms for monitoring and evaluating. Um, they may be subject to external evaluations or audits by third-party organization, uh, but not all, right? And, and I can't deny there are concerns about the potential for NGOs to act with blinders on or in their own interests. And in, in my line of work, we certainly do see this from time to time uh, around extractive activity, particularly. Um, industry watchdogs, for example, play an incredibly crucial role in holding extractives to account. I do not know where we would be without them. A worse place, I am sure. But I admit I have also seen cases of communities that might be interested and supportive of responsible mineral development uh, being targeted and influenced by the interests of an NGO whose ultimate KPI is to prevent resource development at all costs. We have no differentiation between whether that activity is responsible or not, 
uh, prioritizing their own organizational goals over the needs of their supposed beneficiaries. And most problematic at all, in, in my opinion, is that um, these are instances where there may be very little thought for the self-determination of the folks whose land this activity is proposed on, who they purport to serve. And, and of course, that can, that can be intentional or, or unintentional, but the reality is it, it, it happens. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes, I'm, I'm reminded that, um, you know, there are different types of NGOs. We speak of NGOs as if it's a single homogeneous entity, but of mm. course, uh, NGOs themselves vary. You have campaign NGOs, you have development NGOs, and, mm -hmm. and for there are a few, uh, to your point, uh, for whom campaigning is the business, but then there are for whom there is uh, a development goal and they are advocating for that. And, and, and so yeah. I, I think being fair enough to, under, to, to accept that, just as with other interest groups, they are varied and that they yeah. should not be tarnished with the same brush and that yes. we must be very circumspect. And to your point too, that they have given the world a voice, especially the public, and where would you, we be without NGOs in many, many instances, especially in the extractive. So, so I think it's important to be very uh, balanced and, 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 and encourage those that are in the forefront of helping and, and, and discourage those that may be more inclined to be about as a small self-interest than uh, the entire humanity. So, so I, I welcome that perspective. I, mm. I, I did want to ask you though, um, it, it seems we talk a lot about government and corporates. I mean, in terms of uh, accountability mm. matters, where is the land of divide between those two? Who accounts for what <laughs> and when? Mm. Great question. This This is a complex issue that, it definitely requires careful attention and as with the other topics that that we're discussing today important to remember that one size rarely fits all um, but first and foremost is you know, the universal need to develop clear and legal and regulatory frameworks that that govern the activities of both the corporations and the public institutions that are involved with natural resources and, and these frameworks need to be fit for purpose and enforceable in the context above all. Otherwise, this conversation is not worth having. <laughs> and they need to be transparent. They need to be understandable with clearly defined roles and responsibilities of all actors involved at all levels so that from a starting place, we can be on the same page. Next, um, I think it's crucial to promote transparency. Um, so we can talk again about disclosure or reporting mechanisms, again, both corporate and public institutions side. So initiatives like what I mentioned earlier, the EITI um, exist in that space. Uh, in line with this, I think we're, another important thing to mention is we are now seeing the growth of mandatory reporting in various jurisdictions on all sorts of things, requiring companies to report public, um, report publicly uh, on on their activities, on their performance. So environmental, social, financial, uh, governance structures. We have learned that initiatives that that bring this multi-directional transparency and disclosure can make a really big difference, even if they're not a silver bullet, as as we both said. 
but the stakeholder visibility from multiple data points is a huge step in the right direction, especially in things like contracting, payments, uh, revenue distribution, and of course, environmental and social impacts. Um, and then I think that also strengthening oversight and, and monitoring mechanisms is an essential area of action as well. Um, you know, actually checking that both corporations and public institutions are complying with the relevant legal and regulatory frameworks that have been set up. You know, monitoring mechanisms, they, ideally they need to be independent to work well um, and they need to be properly resourced and need to have the necessary authority to, to carry out a function effectively. Um, and then one other thing that this makes me think about is also uh, the importance of establishing effective dispute and grievance resolution mechanisms. Uh, so these can address possible conflicts that arise uh, in the question of governance uh, and accountability. In, in my personal vein of work, we focus mostly on doing this within companies to help them manage their social risk and accountability to community relationships. But at a governmental level and even an intergovernmental level, this can be a very effective tool also. So for example, in Canada, we have the Canadian Ombudsperson for Responsible Enterprise. It's an entity that can receive complaints about Canadian company activity all over the world. And one thing to note is that with any grievance mechanism, um, critical features are you know, that it be accessible, that it be impartial. And again, as I said earlier, that, the, that I have the necessary authority to resolve disputes fairly and efficiently. And I would recommend that anyone listening who is interested in developing something like this or to, to learn more about that particular topic, to refer to the United Nations Guiding Principles on uh, Business and Human Rights, the Ruggie Principles, because they did a great job clearly defining pillars in this case, on the question of human rights. Uh, so you have on the one hand, you have the state duty to protect against human rights abuses. Then on the other hand, you have the corporate responsibility to respect human rights uh, and to help victims achieve remedy. And I just think it's a really good example um, of having clear lines of divide around what is the accountability of each of these entities. Yeah, you, you made reference to the importance of uh, been very diverse in our approach to the identification of stakeholders and the various groups. I mean, it sounds sensible, but it's not self-evident why. Why is it important to disaggregate stakeholders? What's wrong with just dealing with the public as a single composite entity? I mean, one of the first things that... Um... Again, in, in, in my work, when we're, where we're doing stakeholder engagement or stakeholder mapping is, you know, I, I tell people there is no such thing as the general public. I mean, anyone in this room, in this conversation, uh, we, we can't paint everything and everyone with, with the same brush for sure. Um, I mean, the first starting question to get engagement right, are you sure you know all your stakeholders? Because I've seen companies where an individual or a small internal team will try to do this alone. But to really set yourself up for success, you want to be including others in, in understanding the, the nuances of different stakeholders. What are their interests? What are their drivers? What are their values? You know, we're not all the same. You need to be including social scientists in this question that are experts uh, in, in the methodology and in you know, understanding social science, uh, impact assessment, engagement, and 
um, as well as local folks who bring the kind of who's who uh, lens to the process um, and understanding local interests and, and concerns to help you as, a, as an entity, whether as mostly companies, <laughs> to help you as a company understand the issues. Rarely have I seen government being involved in a company's stakeholder mapping but uh, you know, you bringing this up makes me makes me think about that. Like, I would suggest if it's an option, having that input really improves the quality and, and the credibility of your mapping of uh, both who your stakeholders or rights holders are, um, and um, and how to engage with them, right? And what are the issues and what are the impacts and the the, the risks, and and a top tip, not to forget, always do this as early as you practically can in the project life cycle. It will do wonders on, on your journey and you will not regret it down the line. Too often, uh, companies are not asking this question uh, early enough. Hmm. Interesting. So, so you see it not just as important, but as a foundation because it sets out who it is you should have uh, engagement. It sets out who you should form relationships with. It sets out mm -hmm. uh, what the issues are that you should engage on and the reporting processes, et cetera, et cetera. So, so Absolutely. I mean, you know, we have the advent of uh, ESG reporting, albeit uh, to your earlier point, like governance, it's evolving and will probably evolve for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, when companies have reported on ESG and what they are doing uh, in the ESG space, is that sufficient? Uh, or <laughs> from an accountability perspective, how can this be enhanced? I love that question. <laughs> uh, there are, okay, there are some decent frameworks out there to guide reporting for sure. Um, but as the saying goes, garbage in, garbage out. A reporting will only be as quality as the information, the activities, the strategies, the planning, the resourcing, and the process behind it. So reports are there to provide us with a proxy for performance. They do an okay job, but really only an okay job especially depending who the audience is. Now, as ESG continues to mature, what we're seeing is that um, we're getting more robust, uh, maturing disclosure frameworks and transparency mechanisms that um, are enabling folks to get to, the, to that heart of governance. Again, particularly on environmental and social performance, the things that your stakeholders seem to care the most about. Uh, we wanna be getting at questions like, has your company set measurable targets, smart targets, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound? Because way too many companies continue to put out these fluffy sustainability reports with you know, really vague targets, and they look and, and feel and, and frankly are more of a public relations document than a disclosure document that is transparently showcasing your management of critical enterprise risk and your accountability. We know the material topics that we need to hold the average mining company accountable on. So let us ask about targets related to reducing your greenhouse gas emissions, to improving workplace diversity and inclusion, to local content, to supply chain transparency. Uh, another important piece uh, on this is uh, the role of independent assurance moving forward. Uh, this is thankfully already rapidly increasing year over year, and that's largely being driven by investors um, and specifically the fact that the rating and the ranking agencies that you know give your company a grade, again, a proxy for, for, for performance that is just okay, uh, they give you more uh, 
uh, more points, more weighting when you have independent verification of certain data. So if we move towards more and more independent third-party auditing of both performance at your asset level and of your corporate reporting, we will get leaps and bounds ahead of what we're currently at in terms of assuring actual accountability. Hmm. And then lastly, um, and one mentioned to that formalizing board level oversight of this entire process is also a great way to enhance accountability, to improve governance, and to connect performance on the key material ESG issues to, you know, um, to executive in incentive programs, for example, right, your short-term incentive programs, or even if you wanted consequences for failure to meet um, certain ESG performance targets and having that really codified. Sure. So I feel, uh, as with most things, that we get the framework right and conceptually the framework looks responsible. Uh, easy and implementable. And then as we delve into the details, it becomes very quickly uh, clear that it's very complex because we, we started off with the con concept of governance. We have the three legs, uh, transparency, accountability, and participation. You, you very quickly moved into the participation space because you've spoken about engagement. And there mm -hmm. I perceive a complexity because to your point, unless the issues, even if, let's say, even if the issues are clearly mapped and reported on, there still has to be the capacity on the stakeholder side to yeah. not only engage, but also to scrutinize and to validate independently, uh, mm -hmm. to your point. And, and I wanted to get your sense from me as a, a, our last question. How effective are these engagements, therefore, to the extent that we are mm -hmm. dealing with different levels of complexity in your experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, so first thing I would say is that this is highly, highly dependent on your context, uh, for sure. There are, however, a, a few tricks of the trade, if you will, uh, that can set a company up for success when it comes to engagement. Um, I would say companies and governments alike need to understand that for engagement to be an effective tool, we need to see it as a complex process that requires careful planning, implementation, monitoring, understanding of, of, of who it is we are trying to engage and what might be uh, barriers to their meaningful participation. I love the term meaningful engagement. And we've been talking about this um, in, in the extractive space for many years now, but the definition I like the most uh, has been recently codified in the global industry standard for tailings management. Um, and it really brings the, brings you to the next level um, in, in, in getting effective engagement right. And so uh, we're talking about uh, building long-term commitment to actual relationships, to actual partnerships. It can't just be when you want something from people. It can't just be when you have a permitting process. By adopting an inclusive, transparent, and collaborative approach to this area of your activities, you can build trust, you can promote accountability, you can contribute to local sustainable development in a, in a meaningful and in an empowering way. So a few questions, uh, if you're a company or company representative listening to us today, uh, a few questions that you could ask yourself as a company. Uh, first, are you sure you know all your stakeholders? Do you know who you should be engaging? Are you taking an inclusive approach where all stakeholders are given the opportunity to participate, to provide input, 
Have you included traditionally marginalized groups, indigenous peoples, women, youth? How do they prefer to be engaged? Are you listening more than you speak? That one is like number one. Are you listening more than you speak? Do you actually take the input? Is it visibly impacting your organization's decision-making or are you leaving folks feeling like you're wasting their time? Are your communication approaches and tools appropriate to your context, to your audience? Are they tailored for each group? Are you, are you acting to remove barriers to participation? Is your information sharing accessible? Are you, are you honest? Are you open? Um, have you established clear feedback loops? And again, going back to my earlier mention of um, grievance mechanisms or, or feedback mechanisms, do you have one? Is it aligned with the UN guiding principles? Are you extracting learnings from the functioning of that mechanism and your ongoing engagement processes in a plan, do, check, act kind of loop to inform your company's decision-making process and, and help to build trust and, and truly ensure accountability? Yeah, that's a very good way to end this because in a nutshell, what you're saying is if you really want to meaningfully engage, you have to introspect. And there are certain mm -hmm. questions you have to ask yourself before you even engage. And if yeah. you don't have answers for that, it's unlikely you can meaningfully engage. And it's unlikely that, in effect, the outcome of seeking to account will be uh, essentially the desired outcome. And so with those few words, uh, Elizabeth, thank you very much for your insightful uh, responses. I, I think that uh, actually on the latter part, my sense is that it's the companies that will benefit more than anything else. Thank you for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Sheila.